what happened was true. The most bizarre and brutal series of crimes in America. as real, just as close. Just as terrifying as being there. Even if one of them survives, what will be left? The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. After you stop screaming, you'll start talking about it. Everybody, it's Ben Riser. Welcome to episode. Oh, I think it's episode forty-one. Maybe it's forty-two. And I can check that. Son of a bitch. You're getting while there. I, while I do, yeah, we're getting there. Scott left. He couldn't take it anymore. Oh, he's back. Sorry. It's actually episode forty-two of seventy movies we saw in the seventies. Um. With me, You're still across, getting there. We're still getting there. Across the way from me is Mr. Scott Lucas. Hey, Scott. Hey. Welcome back. Thanks for having me the, back. Yeah. Welcome back to the family. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, it's uh, October. Halloween's coming up. Uh, at my job, we're showing uh, a few scary movies, including one of my all-time favorites. Uh, well, they're both great movies, but... Today we're talking about one of them, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, 1974. Let's not get wrapped up in any remakes or sequels or anything like that. Well, those weren't remade in the 70s. No, they sure weren't. Well, absolutely. I'm just saying. I don't know why I said that. <laughs> we we were we were I don't know. We've been talking. We, we earlier this week on our other podcast, we were talking a lot about. Um, remakes and stuff right so right well let's not let's not let's not do that there's no time for that here if let, we're gonna let, let, get into a fight talk. today it's gonna be about eating alive but okay maybe we can avoid that too but that, we'll that's see. that's fine i'll go to the mat for eating alive i love it um so this this uh print you're not showing a print you're showing a transfer of texas chainsaw massacre i believe that we are showing here's something Okay. Not that interesting, but you know, everyone talks about 4K, and that's the mm-hmm. new sort of whatever. And there are sometimes there are the people are doing 4K transfers, which is twice, t- 
twice the amount of data that you get with a 2K transfer, which was the standard for a little while. Or even when people were doing 4K transfers, when I say people, I mean restorationists, if that's a word, or movie studios who were like, how can we cash in on our movie one more time uh, for the right. whole media market and also for like theatrical re-releases? Well, we can... We can turn everything digital and we can turn it into, we can take our 35 millimeter negatives or prints or whatever and transfer them digitally, turn them into DCP files, um, which is the industry standard for how movies get shown in commercial movie theaters. Now, when they first started doing this DCP stuff, it was all 2K. Um, Now you can get projectors that do 4K and we actually have a 4K DCP or DCI compliant is what they really say projector at our UW cinema. So these are just basically Blu-rays for movie theaters. Yeah. If you want to take the Quentin Tarantino tack, you're saying like everything that's digital is really just going to a movie theater and watching TV, which I, you know, I, I'm not here to argue that point, right. but, uh, no, yeah. I'm just I'm just trying to you know dumb it down for for you know oh, the yeah, dummies okay. listening to us. <laughs> yes, although um, in a snark the, in a snarky way as I know how. Right. Although I will say that I don't know, and this is where it loses me. But I believe that there's more pixels or more there's 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 more information per second on a DCP file than there is on even a 4K UHD Blu-ray. So my 4K UHD Blu-ray of whatever, John Wick, if I threw that on at work using our 4K UHD Blu-ray machine, it theoretically still won't look as good as a 4K DCP. Right. Because it's running at a much higher bit rate per second. Yeah, and you'd also like to think that your player isn't as good as what, what the movie theater has as well. Well, you know, that's true if for no other reason than physical media like a Blu-ray disc is like fallible and can skip and sometimes freezes. And for a long time, or for at least a few years, we were doing some Blu-ray screenings at the festival before we got our DCP projectors. But after things started becoming more and more available digitally instead of on film, we were showing Blu-rays and we hated it because... It, they would freeze or skip or some other weird little glitch would happen. And it was, yep. you know, it was embarrassing. So that's another reason to, to use DCP files as opposed to they're more reliable than a Blu-ray. Right. But sometimes yes. the file doesn't come through. I mean, I was at a screening of Escape from New York and they had to shut the screening down because the file didn't come through from the distributor. Um which almost sounded to me like, you know, they were getting it streamed from like they were streaming. Netflix. You right. know what I mean? Yeah. It's yeah. all bullshit. Well, but... I did used to hear that. I know I used to hear that when digital exhibition started in DCPs. My understanding was a lot of these DCPs would never ship physically to a theater, that it would be streaming from some server. Now, I've been told that that is not really something that happens frequently, if ever. Not frequently, no. But what does happen more and more frequently these days is instead of them shipping you a little hard drive that's got this file on it, uh, they do put it out on a secure server for you to then download and then make and then put it on your own 
local server to show. That that might be too geeky right there. No. Okay. It's the Wild West out there is what you're trying to tell us. Yeah. And I will say this. there, You know, it's not like analog film projection is without a million problems of its own. But right. in a certain way... Like, let's say you're showing 35 millimeter print of 30 of um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre and the projector seizes up and it burns a hole in a frame or two or it or it, it something wobbly happens and it tears the film. Right. You know, a, a qualified projectionist can grab that reel, throw it on the editing bed and splice it and put a piece of tape on it and get it back up and running in five minutes. If something weird happens to your digital file, whether it's a DCP or a Blu-ray or whatever, you may never be able to solve the problem. So whereas a screening might be delayed by 10 minutes, like a like a 40th anniversary Planet of the Apes screening I saw a while back that was totally fucked up, but like they kept stopping the movie and then fixing it and starting it again. You know, you couldn't you can't do that with these digital files. The problem is harder to solve if there is a problem. Unless there's a center wrap. Now what is that? Now the center wrap is when they would put all all the the the, the uh the reels of film on, on a platter and it oh, goes on, a platter, into, yeah. on another platter. Uh, and so this happened once when I was working in a movie theater, we were showing jaws for the revenge and, uh, which never should have run through a projector. No, it's not a good movie. Um, but, but, but it is, it is very, uh, allegorical. I mean, it, you know, cause the shark represents her husband. It's, it's, it, it's a, it's a can of worms, but, so it, when the thing starts to, one of the platters seizes up and it starts to wrap around in the center. Oh, so you've got yeah, like yeah, a yeah. whole nother film going on in the center and usually you don't know what's happening and it's too late and the film breaks. And man, we had, you got to unwrap the thing the entire time. And I remember that was showing and it broke over and over and over. We were in there we're like, you know, tearing our shirts off because we were sweating through them and everything. It was just... An absolute mess. That's something you don't want to go to. Did you ever um, wind up having to fix a 35 millimeter film, like resplice it or oh you yeah. take frames? Yeah, yeah. But this this is a much yeah. harder sure. uh, situation because you've got to manually unwrap the thing and you're playing it. And if you don't wrap it faster than the movie's feeding through the the camera, it will break again. And you know, and then you've got to start all over. Not start the movie over, but you've got to. You've got to splice it and then put it back through and then start unwrapping. And, you know, it's it's a race against time. It's yeah. it's uh, it, it was it was far more interesting in that uh, projection room. What was going on than what was going on on screen? That's for goddamn sure. Especially for Jaws 4. Sure. That's what I'm saying. But the point is, is uh, you have a wonderful DCP that you're playing of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And if people haven't seen this DCP, it is a. It's a revelation, especially when you think of this movie as grimy and shitty. And especially if you grew up watching it as you and I did on, you know, shitty VHS copies. When you see it like this, you're like, holy shit, these guys were artists, which they were, which we should definitely will get into. But uh, well, I but yeah, if you've never seen this most... DCP, it's amazing. Yeah, I think that's the thesis of this episode is is is, you know. Talking about Texas Chainsaw Massacre as like, a, you know, as a real kind of an art film. Yep. Which 
aside from everything you're saying about now I saw it for the first time it was probably 1980 or 81 maybe 82 I haven't called my friends to ask if they remember but it was one of the you know starting in 1976 they would have these yearly re-releases of Texas Chainsaw Massacre um, into theaters you know on, on 35 millimeter film and I saw it a local at the college movie theater in Brooklyn New York so was it like a popular, like general audiences type of popular movie or was it like, you know, like college campus type of popular? No, it was a, it was a popular general audience, but I was trying to figure out, it was certainly a film that's reputation preceded it for me and my friends mm-hmm. who had, uh, you know, seen Halloween and, um, probably Suspiria and um, Phantasm, you know, and had been, and had, you know, it, I think the, I think we had started to see slasher films that were, that came after Halloween, you know, and we'd seen Friday the 13th. By the time, Tex, by the time Texas Chainsaw rolled back into town and we were, had the opportunity to see it, which we promptly did. But I don't know how, because it's all pre-internet. And I think that, it was even pre like Fangoria and those other magazines that started publishing uh, pretty quickly, you know, and would talk about upcoming horror movies and about classics. I don't know. I mean, but Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you know, one of the things I learned by watching endless commentary tracks this week, uh, how many commentary tracks are there? There there are four of them. Okay. There's, there's Toby. Now, by the way, here's another thing. All my life I've been saying Tobe Hooper. And I sometimes hear people saying Toby, and I'm like, no, there's no way that he'd spell it that way. It's confusing. But it is Toby. Yeah. I heard him introduce himself on these commentary tracks. It's Toby. It's just one of these deep south Texas things. The one with him, Daniel Pearl, and Gunnar Hansen? Yes. That's the first one I listened to. Then there's one with Marilyn Burns and Paul Partain, the guy who plays Franklin. Right. That everybody Um, hated. That everybody hated until after the movie. And I, what I understand, <laughs> I was like, why did everyone hate him? He's so good in this movie. And yes, his yeah, character is annoying. He's too but, good. Well, that's the thing. Is like, And that's Toby Hooper's fault, really. He did this sort of method acting thing with everyone where he's like, he didn't. What was the movie? What was the more fa- Oh, like, was it Animal House? Where like they weren't allowed, like the the Delta House guys weren't allowed to hang out with the... There's a bunch the of movies, uh, outsiders. But I think there's been any number of movies that have that the director has said, "I don't want this yeah. part of the cast intermingling with that part of the cast." Yeah, it's uh, an obvious thing to do. Sure, and 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 I also think that maybe Paul Partain was like, and actually in the commentary track where Paul Partain is talking with Marilyn Burns and with the guy, I forget what his name is. He's the guy who's driving the van. He's the guy with like the Jufro. Yeah, he's <laughs> like yes. the least memorable of the right characters uh the three of them are talking along with the guy who was the sort of set designer and the guy who did all those props and and oh my god yeah what a genius yeah um and paul was saying that he stayed in character all the time because franklin was so different than him that he was afraid he'd lose the character if he let go of it like in between scenes like he was like i need to keep this whining crazy shit up because I'll, I'll sort of lose track of how whiny I am if, unless yeah. I do it all the time. So there's that. But they all made up after the, after, you know, years after the screening, they were like, oh, this guy's cool. 
don't you know. When you Peter, hear that like, first, when you hear that first commentary, I don't know if it's Daniel or if it's, it's Gunner. Gunner's like, I hate this Gunner. Yeah. Fucking hates him, and it's it's yeah. really entertaining to listen to. Yeah. Well, one of the one of the great things about all of the commentaries is you hear how much thought they all put into this movie, you know, and it shows. But it's not the kind of thing that registers. Uh, for me, at least, when I was a 13-year-old seeing it for the first time, and I think anybody really seeing it, I think the film, the content of the film is so shocking and yep. so sort of disturbing and off-putting that it really, it, it, for, it, it, it doesn't let you sort of take in the artistry and the thought behind the film. And that really is something that you can only sort of start to see you know, on repeat viewings, once you've had yep. some time to digest the content and be like, okay. Right. You when you say? really get into like, I mean, I think this is one of the greatest movies ever made. I, I honestly do. And I think it's a real work of art. And, uh, you know, and I know you and I, we love Halloween, but there's something about this movie that it makes Halloween seem too classy by comparison, like almost like, Halloween or a movie like Alien doesn't really understand horror. Like this movie understands horror in a way that those movies, or they didn't have the guts to touch it. You know, it has this raw power. I mean, it, it's not afraid to wallow in grime. You know, it's not afraid to be ugly. Uh, and yet it has these shots of such elegance, you know? Um, I mean, it, it's, it's really an amazing, amazing movie. And it, and it knows what it's it. It knows what it is, and uh, I don't know. It's it's just like it's it's almost like Slayer, you know, versus Dokken, you know, when it comes, <laughs> you, you know, if, if we can talk in the horror uh, heavy metal sure. terms that we've been talking about lately, or but Adam and the just, Ants versus the Stray Cats. No, 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 man. It, it's like you know, it's like Halloween is Dokken, and it's like this is scary, right? And then you know. Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Slayer show up like, no, no, this is scary. And uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a great, great movie. I love it. Well, it is. It's, it's, it's absolutely, I'm, I'm all with you. It's one of the best movies ever made and really a movie that reveals itself in many different ways every time you watch it. And you're like, oh, oh, like it just gets better and better. Yep. Uh, but I will say that with the first time I saw Halloween, I had that same reaction. I, again, it was 1978, and uh, you know I was 12 years old, and I was hiding under the seat even more than I was at Texas Chainsaw. And you, the thing about there's a couple things about Texas Chainsaw. First of all, it's earlier than those other movies, right? And and it's Toby Hooper who talks about growing up on Hammer horror films and the fact that horror films were for him all of a piece and sort of played out by the time he was getting ready to make his own horror film. And, and the idea, the main idea was to, was to point out that the real horror is human beings and that you don't need monsters that have some sort of supernatural explanation or a science fiction explanation. You know, even night of the living dead is all built around this sort of, you know, supernatural or science fiction concept, like the dead are living. The thing about, the thing that makes Texas Chainsaw so disturbing and original and uncomfortable is there's none of that. You know, the the, the hippie kids sort of keep talking about Saturn being in retrograde, right. and yeah. and there there are those sunspots that are the weird thing that you see underneath the main title credits. But 
you know, the movie itself doesn't come, you know, there's no, there's no hint that there's anything supernatural or otherworldly about anything that goes on. It's just fucking psychopathic creeps killing other people. Yeah. The world is pitiless and, you know, and it's sunbaked and right. there's, there's nowhere to hide. And yet, and here's the thing that I think distinguishes Texas Chainsaw from, um, so many of the films that then were influenced by it, you know, either being complete ripoffs of it or at least, you know, going down that same path is that they've, they, and this is the one part that I don't know if they knew how to figure out or just magically stumbled upon the formula that it, it's pitiless and brutal, but it's also well-crafted and entertaining enough and has something resembling a not completely unhappy ending so that you you don't i didn't walk out of even as a 14 year old i did not walk out of texas chainsaw like in a miserable mood in like uh you know like i hate the world in a way that i did so many times in with some of those french extreme films that we were talking about earlier in the week (laughs) right or something like wolf creek that Australian uh, sort of Texas chainsaw. Did you ever see that one? Oh, yeah. You know, and Hostel and all those fucking torture porn movies. Well, those movies you feel ripped off by. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? You don't feel ripped off by this movie. N- no. And you feel like, right, you feel like this is exposing um, some unpleasant parts of the human condition, but it's not. But you still feel some kind of empathy, sympathy, and sort of. Um, heart behind the filmmaking, and, and, you know, in the way that it treats at least some of the characters. Yeah, the but it's it's also a full on sensory experience, you mm-hmm. know, and and it and it takes you through, you know, you know, not unlike a haunted house, not unlike a car wash, even, you know, it like takes you through this beginning, you know, it's it's during the day, and and it's horrifying. So those those daytime scenes. Are really, really upsetting and really scary. You know, like when Midsummer came out, there was all this like daytime horror. You know, no one's ever. It was like, what about this movie, motherfucker? And then, <laughs> and then, you know, and then it gets to like sort of magic hour horror, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and then it's full on dark horror. And then she busts out of that window, and it's daytime again. Like you've gone through the full gamut of emotions and sensory experiences, and and they've nailed every. They've nailed it every step of the way. Every fucking step of the way. They've gotten the mood right and the relentlessness of it. And by the time you're out of it, you're beat up and you're you're uh, you're wrung out. You know? Right. Um, right. But not you don't feel ripped off, and that's the major difference no. from those other movies. You don't feel ripped off, and you don't feel like I don't want to meet these filmmakers. They're assholes. Even right. even compare, comparing it to like Last House on the Left, which is another movie that I saw around the same time that I saw Texas Chainsaw Massacre, again on like sort of a re-release, but still in theaters, still on 35, still as a preteen or, or tween or maybe a teenager, and was really felt brutalized by and like right. I like that movie, but it's but that's one where I'm like I don't uh, it's cruel. I'd be, I'd be scared if I bumped into any of those actors because. I don't even think they're acting and yeah. I don't want to know how this film made, but that the first 40 minutes of that movie is so horrifying and depressing to me. Like I can't even go back to it and watch it. And there's no, it feels like there's no art to that movie. Right. And where I, and we're and Texas Chainsaw, another line that it, 
treads for me amazingly is that if you stand back and look at it like I've looked at it this week, it really is an incredibly beautifully crafted film as far as the filmmaking from the cinematography, which I think maybe is the secret star of this movie. I think Daniel Pearl comes up with one incredible shot after another. Interesting guy, too. Yeah. And they're doing stuff that none of the sort of drive-in exploitation movies of the time were doing as far as like building tracks and doing all these amazing tracking shots and thinking about low angles versus high angles and thinking about snipping little pieces off the end uh, in between edits to make things a little bit off kilter. There's so much thought that goes on behind every aspect of this film and the sound design. Uh, But when you compare it to something, a movie that came out later that at least partially feels very much influenced and of a piece with Texas Chainsaw, which is Sam Raimi's first Evil Dead movie. Yes. You know, the first the first half hour or so of Evil Dead is 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 clearly riffing off of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And the other thing that that ties it in with Texas Chainsaw is that these are a bunch of young filmmakers who are like chomping at the bit, like want to show their stuff. And they're like all about like we're gonna fucking rock this thing. But Sam Raimi, as much as I love Evil Dead, every single shot calls attention to itself. So you know from the beginning, these are some young whippersnapper, wise-ass filmmakers who are like, fuck you, man. We're going to tape this camera to a stick and we're going to run it through you right. know, the, the ground of, of, of a forest. And every single shot's going to make you feel our presence as filmmakers. And the thing that, that separates Texas Chainsaw from Evil Dead and, and, and other sort of first-time horror movie directors trying to show their stuff is that all that same sort of thought and attention to detail and and creativity behind the camera and the sound is happening in Texas Chainsaw, but they're not hitting you over the head with it. They're not dropping a mallet on you like Grandpa (laughs) at the end of the movie. It's happening, but you don't even realize it until you watch the movie three or four times and you're like, wait a minute, this is another beautiful shot. And like, wait, this shot of the van picking up the hitchhiker is absolutely gorgeous. It could be in a museum. Like you could just take this still frame and put it in a museum. And there's there's any number of shots in this movie where I'm like, give me a frame of that movie, blow it up to wall size, and I want to just put it in my put it in my living yeah. room and look at it every day. Yeah, it took me years to realize that that camera was going underneath the swing, you mm-hmm. know. Um, which is not to I love Evil Dead. This is, this is not right. to you know, no, but but I think Evil Dead is putting in some cartoon stuff in there but i was struck this time by how i was like what these guys are just like this is just like the beginning of evil dead and it never hit me before yeah yeah and and that one actress looks like she's actually in evil dead right yes yeah yeah it's uh well let's go through it um Because we, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm using up all my thoughts before we've even talked about one second of the movie. But, uh, so we start with this text crawl. Oh, so when, when did, well, stop. I, 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 let me stop myself before I start. When, do you remember when the first time you, so you're saying the first time you saw it was on VHS probably? Yeah, definitely. Like I used to go over to a friend's house of mine like every Friday or Saturday, sometimes Friday and Saturday, and we'd go to the video store. And rent these movies. I might have talked about this before. Because, like, I would always go for the George Romero movies. And it would always put people to sleep. Right. But (laughs) Evil Dead was something we rented over and over and over and over. And and this is one of those movies. Um, But I can't really say that, you know, I was really 
then I thought too much of it. I think I thought it was too shitty or, you know, I just mm-hmm. didn't think it was, you know, it wasn't up to the, it wasn't up to the level of Halloween or anything like that. And I just kind of like thought it was cheap and shoddy. And I, I don't think I really realized what was going on, you know? Yeah. And, and to talk, to get back to Halloween for a second, how that, you know, another one of these sort of young, young filmmakers putting it all out there, you know, but Carpenter was always more of like this sort of Hollywood uh, classicist, if that's a word, I don't even know. Mm-hmm. But like he was, you know, he, he was, he was studying John Ford and all, and all those guys who were doing. He was basing this. his movies on Howard Hawks. He was right, doing Howard Hawks, right. And he was all about the widescreen and using, you know, um, uh, what do you Panavision. Call it? Yeah, Panavision and scope. And so, you know, to, you, if, if you were an older person, now this wasn't me seeing Halloween for the first time, but if you were a cinephile, walking in to see Halloween and you were in your 20s and had already been to college and film school and stuff or had been watching movies for a while, you walked in to see this horror movie and it's in scope. And right away, it's telling you, like, this is this is not a fucking exploitation movie that I'm used to. This is something different. This is a guy right. saying, fuck you. <laughs> I'm doing this in scope, right. you know, and, and I'm serious about filmmaking, you know, yeah. and... and and, You've got uh, the Panaglide. We're here. We're ready yeah. to go. Now, I'm going to come clean. I didn't even realize somehow until this week that Toby Hooper's responsible for the music in this movie. Yeah. Uh, music, in quotes, because it's very experimental. And it's one of the things that I realized this week is so interesting and brilliant about this film is that it doesn't, they don't use any sort of standard suspense, you know, horror movie music at all in this thing and so there are these long sequences like uh um she's getting chased through the woods at night by leatherface which is theoretically like a suspense scene but the music is Mm. just this horrible experimental like wash of like and and so it fills you not with a sense of excitement and dread or not with a sense of excitement or suspense but just total dread because you're like they're not they're not trying to get your heart racing with this music they're trying to like drown you in a, in a well, sea of like hopelessness you're already horrified i mean you know i knew it was coming but once again i jumped when he's like quiet something's out there and here he comes and i'm just like you know i mean the first time i saw that i was falling asleep mm-hmm. and then you know and then you know it woke me up i was like whoa and it was like Row! and i remember just being riveted from that point to just like going oh now i'm scared you know but this time I knew it was coming and I was still scared. Like you're so shocked by it. And also they've, they've gone into night for the first time. And so you can't see what's going on. You don't need the, the obvious music that, you know, to get your heart racing. You're fucking terrified. It's yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. And, I, and, um, I think it's on that commentary with, um, Daniel Pearl and, and Gunnar Hansen where they talk, where Toby Hooper talks about that, sequence and that there's one shot where you're seeing Franklin and he's turning his flashlight towards what will become Leatherface uh-huh. but that he snipped I think as little as four frames from the end of that shot so that the flashlight doesn't quite get to its location to its final destination if you're following Franklin's hand or at least the right. wash of the light and then uh-huh. he cuts to Leatherface <laughs> with the thing and so it's he I mean that's the attention to detail they had when with they the were, chainsaw Ben 
Yeah, with he the cuts chainsaw. To him with the, he's got cuts the, to him with the chainsaw. the chainsaw. But it but it happens four seconds or four frames before your brain and your eye think it will, and so that's what. That's why it works show. every yes. single time. Oh yeah. my god! So they're they're psychologists as well. Yeah, they really work. Wow. Uh, so we start with a text crawl. It's not entirely dissimilar to Star Wars, uh, but different in that the words aren't uh, going at an angle. And that also that the words are being read to us by, as it turns out, John Larroquette. Um, doing his best Orson Welles. Doing his best Orson Welles, which maybe isn't that great, but it doesn't. I, I know people say, oh, yeah, it totally sounds like John Larroquette. I don't know. I, 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 I when you know. find out it's John Larroquette, you're like, then oh, you're like, yeah, yeah, I can hear that. But I don't think anybody would have known that unless right. they were told that. I defy anybody to honestly say that. Right. And but I wonder was thinking this week would it have been even creepier and they probably they must have they don't talk about this and it's interesting to me that they do both and maybe they experimented. Would it have been creepier if you just heard those words without reading them or just oh. read those words without hearing them? That would have been cool. But I there's something about the words that makes you feel like it actually did happen. I mean right. they're trying to get that that yes. through. They're trying to make it, you're right. I think the fact that you're hearing it and reading it is, they're trying to pretend it's a documentary, which apparently Toby Hooper says he'd made 60 or so documentaries by the time he made this movie. Like that's what he'd been doing in the 60s was making documentaries. I don't see, I never see the titles of these things listed. I don't know if they were actually just sort of industrial films or, you know, in the same way that George Romero was talking about making commercials and documentaries, few of which you've ever seen. By the way, have you, have you gone ahead and watched, uh, whatever that Romero thing is that's on Shutter now? Oh shit, no, I haven't, I forgot all about it. Yeah. I forgot all about it. Um, yeah, there's a lot of documentary elements in this movie, especially with the cows that, yeah. uh, makes a lot of sense that he did, that he does have a background in documentary or did have a background in documentary. Can we talk about the, uh, uh, what did you say? The font, the, the, uh, of, yeah. of the, the, the crawl, you know, mm-hmm. the, the title sequences yeah. that they use. It's really, really good. Yeah. I don't know what it is, but it's fantastic. Because they, when, when it, when it, when there's the narration going on at the beginning, it's all sort of like in lowercase letters. And then it, the, the, the title comes up, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and it's all in uppercase. And you're like, oh, they've changed the font. And then they, then you realize they haven't. It's just uppercase. Yeah. Like the, um, the, uh, I feel like, you know, the words like director and producer are in all uppercase, but then the names of the actual people are in all lowercase. Right, right. Which right, I think right. is, I love that. I love, yeah. I love stuff that's all lowercase, although I think I've sort of burnt out on it because I used to do it myself all the time. And but it's got that sort of, that infrared sun, sun type of thing going on. Mm-hmm. This movie almost has like three different beginnings. Like it, it's, it's able to have its cake and eat it and eat it too. Yeah. Well, one thing I realize is that we're like five minutes in between the, you know, between this, the flash photography stuff. And then that shot of the sort of corpse shrine yeah. in the cemetery. Great. And then the armadillo in the road. We, we've got, we're, we're a, a chunk into this movie. Uh, and we've seen a bunch of things and everything we've seen is dead. Every mm. single thing we've seen in this movie for the first five minutes is dead. 
And so I think that's fair warning that there's that this movie is about death and there's going to be yeah. plenty of it and that we're going to linger on it, that we're going to yeah. be scared by it. There's going to be flashes <laughs> of it, but there's As also the title be isn't shots enough. that just sit there. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, I, I know you're a big hearing... fan of, of the, the flashing beginning with, with the, the sort of chain. Mm-hmm. What is that sound? It, you know, it's a, uh, I think that, uh, yeah, Toby Hooper actually explains it in one of the other commentaries. It's actually like a tuning fork, uh, a, a huge tuning fork that they would hit and then touch to a broken instrument, broken stringed instrument of some oh, kind. So great. Yeah. And then there's, right. And, and, and there's this, the sound of the sort of Polaroid camera, whether that's actually a, the sound of an actual Polaroid or not, but like the, you know, you get that sort of sound that they've used ever since. Anytime anybody takes a Polaroid, you're hearing that yeah. same sort of trick, trick. And then, um, yeah, I, that shit scared the, the, I mean, so I walked into this movie theater when I was 14 and, um, you know, it was one of these movies where its reputation absolutely preceded it. And, and I knew that this was, for, you know, first of all, there's the title. And then there had been this word of mouth among people like this is one of the scariest things ever. And so I was like already been terrified by Halloween and, and it was 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 scared. I was really scared. And then, by, you know, five minutes in, I'm like, I don't know, this might be too much for me. <laughs> I mean, it really might just be too much. And then it yeah. turned out to be OK, but. Um, I wanted to say that because people then yell at me like, you didn't say this thing. You didn't talk about this. Okay, whatever. Uh, but Larroquette, I like the way he says bizarre instead of bizarre. Um, and that's something that fascinates me. And this is what makes it really feel like it's dated in some fun way is that the words everywhere in this movie in the original ads, or maybe not in the original ads, but in in the credit sequence, chain and saw are separate. Right. Two separate words: the Texas chain saw massacre. And I think that that's. I can't figure out whether that's how chainsaw used to be written all over the place, or this is just an affectation that they decided to do. What I loved hearing about in the commentary from Gunnar Hansen was that when he first saw the movie, he was really disappointed because. He understood the movie was going to be called Leatherface. Like the script right. was called Leatherface. And before that, it was called Head Cheese. Yeah. Um, and then maybe even at some point, they were calling it Saturn and Retrograde. And that sort of Ooh. Hooper came up with Texas Chainsaw Massacre sort, you know, sort of late, late in the process, which I think, God, I mean, not that those other, t- I mean, Head Cheese is a bad title and Saturn, but you know, Leatherface, okay, that's fine. But no. I mean, it's talk not about nowhere a title, near. No one no. near as good as Texas. I mean, uh, you say it's four words, but you know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre—like the three greatest words, <laughs> you know, yeah. strung together in history. I mean, it's just there's a gravitas to it that immediately you're like, okay, I give, I give up. I w- I was also interested. Somebody complains in one of the commentaries that people come up to them all the time and yell at yell at this person about the fact that why is it called Texas Chainsaw Massacre? Only one of the victims is killed by a chainsaw. And I guess that's Franklin. Um, mm. But that never bothered me. <laughs> never, it never occurred to me that there's that, there, that most of the people are killed. Well, most of the people, I guess, are killed like a mallet to the head of some. Yeah, that hammer. Yeah, yeah that hammer. <laughs> yeah, that person was watching it wrong. It should have been the Texas Hammer Massacre, I guess. I mean, you know, he's not, it doesn't end with him doing a dance with a hammer. Right. You know, right. 
It's not called Thor. <laughs> uh, uh, the events take place on August 18th, 1973. Here's something. My birthday is August 18th, so I think the first time I saw the movie, I was like, oh, fuck. This, is, Uh-oh. this takes place on my birthday. Uh-oh. Uh, I love the sounds of the scraping and the digging, which I guess turn out to be grave robbing and desecration. And it really, I I started asking myself all kinds of questions watching it again this week. What is it? What is the grave robbing about? It, and I think it's the hitchhiker character. Yes, he's known. Is he's stealing stuff that they make furniture out of and and shrines and stuff? Okay. I was starting. I was I was almost trying to figure out whether it's also food for them. Like if they're trying to find fresh corpses that they could still do something with. Well, I also get the feeling that he's going rogue because he gets beat up later on. Right. Uh, and he's like, you almost got us caught. You right. Know? Uh, so, like, maybe he's just supposed to be there getting that stuff for the furniture. But one of the things he's not supposed to be doing is making these shrines in the graveyard. Yeah. Um, there's something yeah. that he's not supposed to be doing. And, and right. the reason he's not supposed to be doing that is because he'll get caught. Right. Now, I I haven't seen an, or heard Toby Hooper talk about Night of the Living Dead being something that he was influenced by. But it had to be. But, but it, yeah, it really feels at the beginning of this movie that they're making sort of direct allusions to, to Night of the Living Dead. They're, they've got that news reporting mm-hmm. that's going on that you're hearing in the soundtrack, which sounds very much like the stuff you hear throughout Night of the Living Dead. Right. And you keep and you're listening to that stuff because you're trying to hear like how much of the plot how much of the plot are we gonna learn about through this news reporting, which turns out to be next to nothing. I mean, it only ever is about the uh the grave robbing, which is right. sort of sort of very peripheral to anything that goes on in the movie. But um but then when they when the kids arrive at that cemetery, that whole scene feels very Night of the Living Dead. That's very much feels like some of those scenes where there's like reporters interviewing guys hunting and it's like you know it's all these it also feels like these rural southern guys and i'm not quite sure what's yeah, going that's a on. weird scene right yeah they're all hanging out at that cemetery i think because it's the scene of the crime of the grave robbing and but it seems more like they're having a party right they're like yeah they seem like they're drinking and just carrying on and sitting in the back of pickups and no it seems like like you know they're just People that they pulled up and said, "Hey, we want you to be in a movie. Just hang around." And yeah, I mean, but yeah, what did it's they a really tell them they're scene. doing in this scene? Like you're <laughs> in a cemetery, know. doing what? I don't they're know. Keeping, they're they're sort of. They, I think they're like onlookers. They they're like rubbernecking. I think they're sort of just outside of the police barricades, and they're trying to see what's been happening to these graves that got <laughs> desecrated. Yeah, I, I think that's what's supposed to be happening. It might be the weirdest scene in the movie, which is saying a lot. Yeah, and it, and in addition to Night of Living Dead, it also has like a pretty strong deliverance vibe to it. You know, you're like, okay. I mean, if nothing else, what it really helps is set the set the place. It's like, okay, we're in weird rural Texas. Right, and that was something that Toby Hooper was very into. Like, that's why he wanted, he told Daniel Pearl, like, we have to have a Texan shoot this. Like, he wanted it to be very... A Texas movie rooted in Texas folklore, or, or or just the stink of Texas, you know. I mean, he was very much into that. Yeah. 
so we so we so we meet these these uh are there four of them four kids is that right one two yep oh, no five. five 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 kids there's like two couples and then franklin right and they're in this green ford econoline van which is not really the mystery machine but kind of close and it's it always cracks me up how how much of a scooby-doo vibe there is to this movie too and of course really i looked of it up I looked it up, and of course, there's all these Scooby-Doo, Texas Chainsaw song mashups available, like cartoons, like people have right. illustrated scenes from this movie, but with the Scooby-Doo characters. Right. Perfect. <laughs> I mean, but there's some, like, you were talking about the avant-garde, arty and, uh, editing, and there's a lot of that going on mm-hmm. in, in this scene. And sometimes that can just be attributed to somebody who doesn't know how to edit, and it's low budget. But... It just seems it 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 seems very uh, avant garde to me. Yeah, avant garde, and also again, like extremely well thought out. And an, a, a thing I kind of want to say, and I'll just say it, and I know we can argue about. Excuse me, argue about it. And and it's not that I don't like Toby Hooper. It's not like the, he doesn't have other movies that I. Haven't enjoyed. I love Poltergeist, um, you know, and whether and there's a whole argument about did he really direct Poltergeist? Or, uh, you know, there's there's other movies of his that I enjoy. I was a big fan of the Salem's Lot TV thing mm-hmm. when it when it first came out. Um, but it seems to me more than any other of these horror genre filmmakers who came out of the gate and made their masterpiece and then sort of chased that for the rest of their careers with varying degrees of success. Toby Hooper to me feels like maybe the least successful after his, after this, like, I think he never, there aren't there. I don't, I can't think of another Toby Hooper film and I'm taking poltergeist out of the mix. Cause there's the, there's the debate of whether how, how much he's responsible for, for that right. film. There, there aren't any other films of his that I feel like achieved the kind of success and the sort of purity of vision that this has, like I, like he seems in control of all of the elements of this film in a way that I never get that sense of, or, or, or it's just that not- he's trying to do different things in his other films that I'm just not that into, like um, Life Force, which mm-hmm. I guess on its own terms is doing exactly what it wants to do. I just don't really want it to do that, and it's mm-hmm. too goofy for me and. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, he's trying to do one of these Quatermass movies, I guess, yeah. you know? And, yeah. and so once you say, okay, this is a Quatermass movie, he's trying to do one of these sixties British science fiction movies yeah. and he's trying to do every element of that the way they would do it. Then I can sort of get into its headspace and go, okay, but it, it's work. It takes work. I'm not, it's not, it's it not takes work for you to watch Matilda may walk around. Yeah. Okay. All right. I understand. <laughs> uh, but maybe it's the opposite. Maybe he's not in control of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Maybe this movie is just working through him. Maybe it is so pure and it is so real that he's just trying to hold on and trying to shape and mold this, but it's already there. You know what I mean? And like, it's just... Well, then it is. A, this movie would have chosen somebody else if it hadn't chosen him. It would well, have happened. 
well then it's like, then it's like you know it's it's miraculous in ways that I hadn't even considered it being miraculous in that the casting is so great. I mean, for me, Paul Partain is, as Franklin is so great in this movie. That character, I understand, he's completely annoying, but to me, he's so brilliantly annoying and so realistically annoying to me. Like I buy that fucking guy as a character. I don't know. Hit- I mean, I, I think he, there's some line <laughs> readings that really are just. What are the line readings from Paul Partain that you don't like? Uh, I don't know. When he's sitting there talking about that whole thing where he spits, I don't really buy that scene. You know, uh, there's a. I don't. Takes I don't that think dick sausage I, out of his mouth in his spitting, or when he's doing I don't like think the raspberries. A, I don't think he's a good actor. Uh, I think he's perfectly effective in this movie, but uh, I don't think he could play anything else. Oh, I saw him play something else in Race with the Devil. He stood on a racetrack. <laughs> he, he's got at least one line in that. Right, 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 right. Apparently, uh, he's in one of uh, the Texas Chainsaw remakes or sequels or something, like in a small role. But uh, it's, Yeah, I think this movie's just so elemental that, uh, you know, I mean, uh, it, it's Citizen what Kane. About this guy, you know? What about this guy, Ed Neal, who's the hitchhiker? I mean, to me, that's an amazing performance. And I think the interaction between Franklin and the hitchhiker in the van is one of the great... I think that scene is just one of the great scenes in movie history. That's great. And I just don't think that Hooper, in any of his movies after this, gets close to that sort of, like, What about What's-His-Face in Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2? He's got the uh, coat hanger... And he's scraping like the metal plate in his head. Is it Bill Mosley? Bill Mosley. Okay. That is a great performance. And I think, uh, you know, he could do it again. And I think Eaten Alive is a great movie. And what's really interesting about Eaten Alive is like, like Toby Hooper always wanted to have these expressionist type of, he always had these expressionist tendencies and, you know, they're full bloom and eaten alive. And from then on, they never kind of went away. Once he had the budget to do those things, he kept doing that. Even in Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, like the lighting is, is over the top and it's crazy. And he loves working on sets. He couldn't do that with this movie. And maybe that's what it is. Like his, his uh, tendencies were fighting up against uh, the low budget and the limitations and then that caused this explosion of what this movie is and it that that was the part that was out of his control and that's what made this great art well i i i i think that's a great point i love it i think you're i think you must be right and that makes all the sense in the world to me but to me it's like uh, you know do, having his expressionistic tendencies come up against zero budget location shooting and all these found locations and stealing, stealing locations, you know, uh, why didn't he realize that that was his key to success? And why didn't he go ever go back to that? Yeah. I don't think you can see that. I mean, when you're in the eye of the storm like that, you just, you can't see stuff like that, you know? And sometimes you never get the distance to see stuff like that, you know? And, also, people, you know, artists are artists. They're like, fuck it, I already did that. Why should I repeat myself, you know? Yeah. And if he had tried to repeat himself, you know, I mean, look at the derision that was heaped on uh, 
Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 when it came out. People didn't get that. They didn't understand. They're like, why, why are you doing this? You yeah. Know? He, he, he couldn't have won. Um, yeah. But, but yeah, I mean, he's, he's a really interesting, really interesting guy in, in that he never, I, I don't think he was able to go straight. I just don't think it, it wasn't in him. He wasn't able to play that game and just, you know, the closest he got was Poltergeist. And I, I love Poltergeist, but, you know, without that constant prodding by Steven Spielberg, he couldn't have made that. Maybe. Right. I don't know. I mean, I, yeah, it's, it's fun to try to imagine a purely Toby Hooper version of Poltergeist, like what it would have been had he just been left to his own devices. Uh, well, unfortunately, you know this, it's, it's, I, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to imagine that. I mean, the film that he made right afterwards is Life Force. Right. And the film it's hard to see be- him in there too, right? Right, and the film he made before it was the Fun House, which I saw in a theater when it came out, and was like, I can't even believe what I'm looking at. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that bad. It's not that bad. No, you know, something I read today. Have you heard this? That Poltergeist was originally conceived as a sequel to Close Encounters oh, of the Third Kind. I read kind. that today too, and I'm glad you brought it up because I forgot. But I was I read that and I was like, what? I'd yeah. never heard that before. And and Hooper sort of like pushed it into ghost story territory. So, you know, so I'm trying to, I'm really, let's think about this for a second. Try to imagine what they mean when they say this was imagined as a sequel to close encounters. So the sequel to close encounters was about aliens bringing, pulling Carol Ann into an alien landscape through the TV. Maybe. I don't Maybe understand what any of that has to do with Close Encounters. I think that <laughs> that's like a it? Wikipedia thing, right? <laughs> who knows who the fuck wrote that? Okay. All right. All right. I mean, so I don't know. That where seems are we crazy at right to now? me. I, I have heard about Close Encounters sequel concepts, and I thought they were always all about like Richard Dreyfus on the alien world. And that's why they kept like building a couple more minutes onto the end of Close Encounters right. to sort of like give you a preview of what the next one might be. I mean, there's, you know, when I read that, I was like, oh, yeah, a lot of those scenes with all the stuff and the little kid, that it's kind of Close Encounters-y, you know, and they're making all the things move around. I go, yeah, I guess I can see that. Yeah. I bought it. I mean, here, here's, the, here's what I would say, that my favorite sequence scared the shit out of me but in a great way when i saw it when it came out is the sequence in close encounters where um the little kid is you know where that the the his his little toy record player starts playing and the shit starts moving and the stuff right that's my that's my favorite sequence in close encounters and that is a very poltergeisty feeling right. sequence right right so somebody could look at Close Encounters in that sequence and say, well, I see a lot of Poltergeist in that. So Poltergeist is, in its own weird way, a little companion piece right. to Close Encounters. Right. Never even sequence. occurred to me. Yeah. Poultrygeist. Remember Poultrygeist in Mad <laughs> yes. Magazine? Yeah. 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 Okay. Was that mad or was it cracked? Poltergeist. I can't remember. I thought like... it was... Poltergeist feels a little cheap for Mad, but the, actually, I've looked at some Mad <laughs> magazines true. lately from my it's, childhood and been like, ooh. Yeah. This doesn't even look the way I thought it. I thought it was much yeah. cooler than it turned out to be. 
But I remember the Poltergeist Mad Magazine opening panel, and it was talking about Joe Beth Williams and how she's too hot for the the Craig T. Nelson character. I remember that. Right. And then I remember a letter that came in later on saying, well, in Kramer versus Kramer, whatever that was, what, whatever Mad Magazine called that, they, you said that she was, you know, dowdy and, you know, not very hot. And what changed? And then they had some smart-ass answer, and I can't remember what it was, but uh, I'm sure maybe somebody knows. I'm sure somebody knows. Sure Poultry Geist. Yeah, you're right. That does sound like cracked. So they drive past the old slaughterhouse where Grandpa sold cattle, and we get some exceedingly creepy shots of the cattle. Um, yeah. Some amazing shots of cattle. Yes, like that first visible. shot of that cow is yeah. like, wow, really upsetting. Yeah. Like that cow's about to puke. And I know that this film gets talked about a lot as what is the, what is the subtext of this movie? Is it about the, you know, the... Uh, the end of the American family unit or is it an mm-hmm. anti-capitalist screed or is it, uh, you know, is it just about that, the basic inhumanity of man? And to me, if there is a subtext, it, I mean, which almost feels like text, it's all about, you know, uh, uh, becoming a vegan or a vegetarian. It's all about like how animal cruelty, the animal cruelty. And there's no difference between cattle and, and people and right. And, you know, what happens and, when you when you apply animal cruelty to to people? Right, right. Now I don't hear Toby Hooper or anybody talk about it, that at all in any of these commentary tracks. But I still think, wow, there's a lot. There's a lot of stuff just on the surface of this movie, which is like this is a this is about trying to convince people never to go to another barbecue. <laughs> right, it's a potent brew, you know. Yeah. Th- so so then they uh, they pick up the hitchhiker and like I say, one of the one of one of the perfect shots in this movie is the sort of long shot of the the van is in the lower third of the frame. We get this huge open sky and right. this dude running up to them. Um, and there's and then so Edwin Neal, the guy who plays hitchhiker, who I, I think even if you can argue about Paul Part- Partain, this guy I just think knocks it out of the park. I think he is so legitimately scary, creepy, off-putting, and it, it's yeah. I'm not. I'm not after anybody but Paul. He's <laughs> he's the only one that I I agree with. Gunner is what I'm trying to say. Right. Uh, he. Uh, but he he starts right off the bat because he's got this crazy burn, birthmark, <laughs> scar it's on birthmark, his face. Right? Yeah. That is so fucked up. That you think this has to be real because no makeup artist or even non-makeup artist would think, oh, this is what we'll do. But it isn't real. It's a it's an actual makeup thing. And I, I think that's a great lesson to learn as filmmakers. Like, do something that's so fucked up looking that people will be convinced it's real because they would never believe that you would deliberately right. design something to look like that. Well, he could have been, he could, he could be a hippie, you know, except for that. And that repulses them. You know, he can't be one of them. Um, I mean, he's, you know, a hair away from being a, a real. Well, he's also got a 
pouch hanging from his neck that's made out of a fox. <laughs> like a little fox. Like a I've seen hippies wear some weird shit. Yeah. Yeah. Including the, the hippies in this movie. Yeah. Um, but he... Uh, and then Franklin says, we just picked up Dracula, which I think is a funny line. And also like a funny... And like an interesting thing in that they're making reference to sort of classic universal horror movies yeah. as they're making this movie that's like the anti monster movie, monster movie. Right. Uh, but oh my God, it hit me so hard uh, how much of a total James Franco vibe this Ed Neal has in this thing. And like how James Franco, I feel like, has crafted entire performances just from this, this huh. hitchhiker character. Huh. Like that's... watch that scene again. That van and scene, what, and think of James Franco. What James Franco movie are you thinking? Uh, maybe that one where it's like the end of the world, where he's playing himself. <laughs> so just James Franco. Yeah, and then the what's the one? Is it Spring Breakers, where he's got the dreadlocks? And oh yeah, Spring Breakers. Oof. It's not so much. I don't know what it is. There's something about the, the goofy energy of him. And I feel like he looks like James Franco once you think about it. Um, but my daughter does too. So maybe I just have an obsession with people who look like James Franco in some weird way. Uh, but he's got these snapshots of these cow carcasses. And then he wants to take their pictures. And he does take Franklin's pictures. So that's another thing where it's like the movie is saying... Dead cow. The, this guy takes pictures of his meat, of his of the dead meat that he's right. gonna do stuff with, and so he's lining them up to be his next sort of souvenir things. Uh but I love that when he when they they don't want to buy the picture from him for two bucks, he does that crazy thing where he. I mean, I feel like this is a scene you see it once and it stays with you for the rest of your life. All the crazy details. The fact that he's got this amazing piece of tinfoil that he has for just such a purpose that he can unfold and he's got this gunpowder that mm. he has for the occasion and is able to light that picture on fire in like this weird sort of safe way, you know, that he can then cover with the tinfoil. It's such a, I mean, talk about like an original idea that seems to come from nowhere and just been invented for this thing. But it's like, you just buy it. You just think, yeah, yeah this is a real guy. And this is what this fucking guy does. Like, I, I, if you had asked me after the first time I saw this movie, do I think that that guy is an actor? I would have been like, no, I just think that's a guy that they bumped, that they knew is that guy. Right. But that guy is an actor. And that guy's gone on to do Ed Neal become like a really prolific voice actor. And, and done like hundreds of like, you know, animated s series and things as various voices. Right. Animated. He was in uh, Race with the Devil. Oh. He's in Race with the Devil? No. no oh. He's in Race with the Devil. <laughs> he is in some. Wait, I got it. I got his. I got his. I'll tell you what, what movies. Well, I guess he never was. There's, there's no other like movie movies. He was in. Uh, Oh, here's the other movie that like we've seen that he's in. He was in JFK. As what? His character's name is Mercer. <laughs> okay. That could be anybody. Yeah. There's a well, there's a lot of people in JFK. Yeah. I mean, there are huge stars that are in that movie for 30 seconds. Right. 
Yeah, I'm trying to find a picture of him from JFK. Donald Sutherland was in JFK. Was he? Yeah, and you got to ask yourself, who benefits? Who stands to gain? Uh, you want to see a picture of him in JFK? Mm, yeah, let's yeah. see it. Ah, you don't care. Come on, let's see it. Show it to me. Okay. Hang on. There's sure no picture, is there? There is. Here we go. <coughs> hey, did that work? That's him? Looks like Roger Waters. <laughs> well, look, here he is in real life. Yeah, he looks like Roger Waters. Looks like he's talking about David Gilmore. You're right. He does look like Roger Waters. Amazing. Well, I don't see him in the movie. That's him in the movie? That's him in JFK. Huh. So he plays somebody from the government, I'm guessing. Yeah, it looks like it. Yeah. That was nice of Oliver. Yeah. Well, you know, a lot of these guys from Texas Chainsaw seem to have stayed in Texas. They were Texas took place in Texas, yeah. Yeah, they were Texas actors and they stayed there. And so, Did you know, Ben, that Texas is the reason the president's dead? Yes. Okay. Uh... He grabs Franklin's knife, cuts his own palm. There's this crazy old-timey music that's playing in this scene. In the van. It's hard for yeah. me to figure out whether the hippies are listening to that on their car stereo, or he's brought that music in with him, like he's got a transistor radio. Well, there's, there's some comedy bits in this movie, but it never... Like, we were talking about Last House on the Left, and, like, the comedy bits in that movie really overwhelm the movie like really just like take you out of it and and like you know there's a scene where they're at the gas station and and the guy at the gas station is like he's walking away and as he walks away the guy cleaning the car walks away and then he goes oh one more thing turns back and then that guy starts cleaning the car again yeah it's it's you know it's slapsticky but it's not too slapsticky whereas the slapstick in last house on the left it's just too much and it What's just the slap destroys the, the movie on the left? remember they play that sort of once again this old timey music this do 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 and you know there's like somebody like like hitchhiking i mean i can't even remember but it was yeah that's really the beginning of the movie there is that fucking but bad i don't know if it's old time maybe it is old timey but it feels like it's more like weird like hippie-ish stuff it's like strangely dated stuff yeah in last house yeah but yeah, I don't. Th- or, but that doesn't strike me as even. I don't even know some kind of country Joe and the Fish humor. type of music yeah. or something mm-hmm. like that. Right. But it keeps going throughout the movie, like it's a B plot. Well, you're to right. me, it's this weird dissonance, like where like what you're seeing is so horrifying, and they're playing this music that mm-hmm. is seems like it's from another movie. And oh I, no 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 no! I'm pretty sure it goes back and forth between. Mm-hmm. This this sort of uh, somebody's on the road and it's sort of this hitchhiking subplot or so, I I can't remember man that one of my favorites yeah I was surprised when I was talking to people on podcasts over the last year or two about horror movies and that would come up and people would be like oh and I realized oh I always thought that people had all this respect for Wes Craven's first couple movies like Last House and um, Hills have eyes. Hills have but eyes. All, but all my like film friends were like, "Oh God, those are terrible." Yeah, not too good. Um, 
the uh, but the thing, but but the thing that's through all these commentaries about Texas Chainsaw that Toby Hooper and Daniel Pearl and Gunnar Hansen all say uh, is how the humor that's built into Texas Chainsaw, which they think there's a lot of it, but was you know people didn't get it for like a decade because they were so horrified by the movie that the the humor didn't register with them. Right. And so yes, absolutely, that guy who's washing the car is meant as sort of comic relief and. And and, and, you know, and there's all this stuff with Leatherface and with the sort of arguments between the three brothers. What I learned right. this week is that the cook, the guy who runs the gas station, he's not... I always thought he was the father, you know, that there was yes. a grandpa, so father, and then Leatherface and the hitchhiker are the brothers. Well, I don't even... I never, I never even considered what Leatherface is. But Leatherface seems to have taken over the role of the mother, Uh He's got make. He wears makeup on his mask uh, for dinner. He's got yeah, this yeah. Sort of female wig on his right, head. right. And he's got this weird sort of baby voice. So many layers. He's like an infantilized mother. Yeah. Um. So he takes pictures of dead meat. Takes Franklin's picture. He wants two dollars for it. Takes out the tin foil. Takes his switchblade out. Cuts Franklin's arm. I mean, that whole scene, I think we said this in another, or I said it on another recent podcast, right? like maybe that's the scariest scene in the movie to me. That being stuck in the van with that fucking guy takes off at a switchblade and starts cutting people. I mean, talk about being trapped in a room. Still a better day at the park than getting put on a meat hook. Come on. Let's, let's not, yeah, let's not minimize a woman's experience again. <laughs> that is a horrifying scene that we are about to get to. Uh... What I love hearing about is that Toby Hooper imagined that he and kept calling the MPAA during shooting or pre-production yeah, to find out else. how he could get a PG. <laughs> Isn't this just the total opposite of what we've been talking about? You know, like how the Anything Goes 70s where these PG movies we thought were actually rated R, you know, like yeah. the nudity in Lifeguard yeah. or the violence in Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Yeah. Here's a movie... They thought it was going to be PG, and it got an X. You know, yeah. it's like, it, I guess it wasn't Anything Goes. You know, and a lot, of, a lot of people talk about how there's no blood in Halloween. There's not a lot of blood in this movie either. I mean, well, they talk there, about that. Toby Hooper talks about that there's not a lot of blood in But I don't think people movie. at large talk about that. I, I think that they... I, I've heard that. Like, I've, I've heard for years, and maybe I've heard this from the get-go, that, like... That, that that there's a lot less than there's a lot less on screen than your mind tells you there is in Texas yeah. Chainsaw. But watching it again this week, even with that in mind, and even with Toby Hooper saying, "Yeah, we you know there's no blood, there's blood in this movie, and there's stuff in this." There, there's it, it's true. Some of these scenes are very short, and you don't actually see contact. There maybe isn't as much blood as what there would be like in the you know in Dawn of the Dead or. Day of the Dead or, or face crushing in, in the PG rated Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Yes, but it's like alien face crushing, which is a <laughs> okay. whole other category. Yeah. Um, right. No, there is something unbelievably horrifying about uh, Marilyn Burns getting the blood sucked out of her finger by Grandpa at the end. Yeah, and it turns out Grandpa was played by an eighteen-year-old, and he does this little 
dance in his chair like he's getting rejuvenated while he's sucking her her <laughs> finger and that's maybe that that's again some obvious humor but it's also horrifying so the it's thing about the humor the thing about the humor in Texas Chainsaws it's equally the humor is, is for the most part like incredibly disturbing in and of itself the, and that's Toby Hooper's thing that was his thing about like this is just so you know and fucking Rob Zombie, his entire whatever you call it is is ripped off from him, you know? Yeah. Except he's not funny and he also doesn't really know how to be scary, so. Right. Yeah. In my opinion. Yeah. No, yeah. No, you're you're right. Uh sixteen millimeter blown up to thirty five millimeter, that's something that they talk about a lot on these commentaries that they had no money. They shot this thing in 16 and that the film speed was incredibly slow. Right. And so even more than usual, like it was impossible to light these things and they didn't have a lot of lights. Right. And so when you hear all that, the way it looks is even more amazing, especially now that we see it like the way they intended it. I mean, it's a beautiful, yes, it's grimy and yes, it's really grainy, uh, you know, and these locations are sort of hideous, but they're beautifully composed and the sort of the colors, you know, the attention to detail with all of the set design and the colors that they make sure and all the shots and how they're framing things and how they're moving the camera. It's just gorgeous. Yeah. I mean, they're outside in the Texas sun. I mean, this is another example of why something like this was never duplicated. You know, maybe that slow film. I mean, any other film would have been overexposed no matter what they did out in the sun like that. And maybe this was the exact proper film to be used in that situation. And that's why yeah. it looks so great. And, you know, they were, they'd never have to use that film again once they got bigger budgets. So, you know, why would they, be, why would they do that? You know, they wouldn't right. know. You know, right. there's all these things that's just like, boom, it made this thing. And, and I know, also all, think that that slow film helped the night stuff really look like night. That, yeah. you know, they were pouring all the lights they could on it. You can still barely see stuff, but that actually helps sell it as like, oh, yes, I feel like we are in the nighttime and this is a, as much or as little as we'd see if we were actually there at the time. Right. So uh, they arrive at the We Slaughter barbecue, which I heard on a commentary track today is not supposed to be We Slaughter. It's supposed to be W-E. You can't see the, the periods after the W and the E, but apparently it, like, it was supposed to be a joke. Like, it was like the initials. Right. But I never yeah. understood that, but I always thought just We Slaughter is a funny enough joke. Right. Well, I mean, did you know that Toby Hooper developed Motel Hell? Uh, that sounds right to me. Yeah, I think I must have heard that over the yeah, years. Yeah, I mean, th that was basically sort of his idea for for a, a, a sort of unofficial sequel to uh, Eaten Alive? Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Oh, okay. And so that was, he was going to sort of, that was going to be his way of like saying, saying to people, see, I am funny. And right. then uh, when, for some reason he left that project and then he took a lot of those ideas from Motel Hell and turned that into Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, which still was a case of him going, see what we were doing was making sort of a comedy. It's like, you weren't really making a comedy, dude. Maybe you tried, but once again, this movie took over in ways that you didn't really, I don't think, even understood. And I'll say, for as much of a more overt comedy that Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 is, 
it's still the, there's a scene in that movie which is d- as disturbing as anything yes. I've ever seen, where they're like, he's is it? Le- they're, they're 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 making her wear yeah a mask the, of the, the guy's the face, dead face, yeah, yeah. yeah. oh my the dead God. skin mask. That's something yeah, else. like even that stuff with Bill Mosley where he's like he's he's taking pieces of his skull so you can see his plate exposed and he's taking pieces of it. Not his skull, but the skin around the skull, and he's eating them. And I mean, you want to talk about a fucked up detail? I mean, and and that is something that you laugh at in absolute abject horror. You know, I mean, that's that's what he, the guy did. This, yeah. this Daniel Pearl guy. Let's talk about this Daniel Pearl guy. Yeah. Uh, like, it, he was born in the Bronx, even though he was a Texas guy. Right. Right. So he did Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And then, as far as I can tell, he didn't really do anything until the 2003 remake. And all he did in between that was, like, he did the Every Breath You Take video. Uh, He won a cinematography award for that. Uh, He did the I'll Do Anything for Love uh, video, which he cites as one of his all-time favorite projects. And then he comes back to films to do the 2003 remake of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. He does Alien vs. Predator, Friday the 13th remake. He's doing all these remakes of of the thing that he jump-started, but had, seems to have no interest in making movies during this whole time. Well, uh, it's, it's fascinating true. to me. He doesn't, right. Well, here's the thing. He, you're right. He doesn't work between 74 and 78. Then in 78, he does that movie, The Fifth Floor. What is that? Oh, you don't know? No. <laughs> Do you know? You're just a looking college it up. disco dancer is wrongly committed to an insane asylum. Okay, so it's a horror film. Yes. Bo Hopkins, Patty Darbinville. Um but so he does and he does a couple other movies like Full Moon High in nineteen eighty one, Hometown USA mm. and so, but then you're right. And then he oh he was the director of photography on Zapped in eighty two. Oh. Well, I take back everything I said but about the guy not going for the brass ring. You're rattling off a few of, he did a fucking million, he did basically every music video that was made right. between 83 and like 93. But I then mean, he gets out of it to make yeah. a remake of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But I'm going to, as fast as I can just okay. rattle through, you right. named a few. He did, he did the videos. He shot the videos for Super Tramp, It's Raining Again, Laura Branigan, oh. Solitaire, The Tubes, She's a Beauty, The Police, wait, Every wait, wait. Breath You Take. Laura Branigan, Solitaire? Yep. All right, go on. The Tubes, She's a Beauty, The Police, Every Breath You Take, The Police Wrapped Around Your Finger, Rick Springfield, Human Touch, Stevie Nicks, If Anyone Falls, Kim Carnes, Invisible Hands, Cool in the Gang, Joanna, mm. Genesis, That's All. Oh. <laughs> Donna Summer, she works hard for the money. Billy Idol, dancing with myself. Thompson Twins, you take me up. Thompson Twins, sister of mercy. You two, pride in the name of love, version one. Right. Elton John, passengers. Berlin, dancing in Berlin. Frankie goes to Hollywood. Relax, the body double version. Oh wait, so he. I shot- don't know what that means. That's the whole... He's not the director of photography for Body Double. So no, but he's know. the director of photography for the video that's in the middle of Body Double. But why wouldn't that have just been shot by the guy who shot the rest of Body Double, Stephen Burham or whatever? Maybe maybe De Palma wanted to be as close to a video as possible. Right. And this was the guy. This was the Sticks, guy. Sticks, 
caught in the act. Scandal featured. So he Patty did the Smith entire caught in the act movie. Yes, okay. the video documentary. Yep. Meatloaf, Nowhere Fast, John Cougar, Mellencamp, Authority Song, Go West, Authority, Colony, and Emotion Authority. <laughs> Air Supply, Just As I Am, Iron Maiden, Life After Death documentary. He's oh, here we go. Wow. BB King, guys, Into the Night, Wham, The Edge of Heaven, and then he was the director of photography for Toby Hooper's Invaders from Mars. Okay. I mean, here's the but thing. But I mean, it seemed like Can a guy was unbelievable. Can you imagine the money this fucking guy was making all these years? Yes, I get it. But the guy was unbelievably talented, and I yes. like, I just, I'm surprised that you know he didn't shoot something for Philip Kaufman or Steven Spielberg or something like that. You know, well, he that's right, and it goes again to my thesis about this being this weird outlier and that this this they these guys got together and made this masterpiece and then they never seem to have tapped into the particular magic of this masterpiece again and it's just as true for daniel pearl for with for all of that stuff it still doesn't strike me as the work of the guy who did the cinematography on texas chainsaw massacre which seems so masterful so well thought out and so careful and so sort of artistic in a way that none of this other stuff oh wait a minute he did it's alive three island of the alive which is a wonderful movie well i do remember the super tramp video and thinking that that movie looks i mean that video looks really good he did you two with or without you he did the police every breath you take he did rem we already said every breath He, he won an award for that well, maybe he did right, more what, than one let, thing. Let me guess what R.E.M. he did. The one I love? I don't really understand what this is, and hopefully you'll explain it to me. It's called R.E.M. Succumbs. Ah, uh, yes. Which is what? Is that a song? No, no it's, uh, it was their video collection where it, it collected all the videos uh, oh, okay. before they jumped to um, Warner Brothers. So it's so in parentheses it says next to that it says the video Radio for Europe. So he actually shot the Radio for Europe video, which is part of that collection. Which I don't remember what don't that would have looked like, because as best I can remember, there's only one with the band actually in it in South Central Rain. Yeah, he did a bunch of Terrence Trent Darby videos. He did the oh. Rolling Stones "Almost Here You Sigh" video. Okay, so he and did a lot of videos. Is what you. Yeah. This is what you're getting at. He did the John Bon Jovi Blaze of Glory video. I can't I could go on for another twenty minutes. This I know you could. Endless. Oh my god. But unfortunately our time is done because right. this movie yeah. is true. only uh an, eighty four minutes. Minute is it? Oh well we've only been on an hour twenty one. All right, so uh, where are we? Okay, Franklin starts talking about the old Franklin place, which confused me this week because I was like, wait a minute. His first name is Franklin. Why is he talking about the old Franklin place? <laughs> is his name Franklin Franklin? And it's no, his, it's Har- Hargity or something, right? What's their last name? Him and Sally. They talk about it in the in the opening crawl. Maybe he likes to talk about himself in the third person. I, I just like, think he like must Rain have. Man. I think Franklin was his grandfather's last name, and for some reason they named him after his grandfather's last name. That's what I've decided <laughs> is the story, the backstory here. No, I think this is where the planning breaks down <laughs> this is where it broke down this is where uh, <coughs> I'm not sure what cut of barbecue Franklin has in his mouth but it famously looks like, looks, it looks like a dick or a piece of shit or a dick made out of shit yeah then Just there's that, that they ne- didn't like him yeah 
Uh, but he's he's into it. He's got that thing in his mouth for a long time. Oh, he's really into it. <laughs> and then there's a, and then there's that nest of spiders at the yes, Franklin house. The daddy long legs. Daddy long legs and the sound of those spiders, whatever that is, that's harrowing. That that my friend is some good uh, production design. The production designer brought all those spiders into that old house and set it up. I mean. Whew, they really went the extra mile. Now that well, guy is the true genius. Yes, but and jokes. Who's aside, the production designer? They, this guy Bob um, Burns, same last name as Marilyn Burns. <laughs> Robert Burns. Now is that the same Robert Burns that was one of the producers of Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer? Mm, is it Robert be. A. Burns? I don't know. Does he is he mostly a production designer? I don't know. Oh, that you were looking at something. Well, I, I I'll never forget the. The credits in Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, Robert A. Burns. No, but the one of the producers, I don't know the answer to that question, but there is another guy who produced this movie who went on to produce um, Silence of the Lambs and won an Oscar for that because that won Best Picture, and that's a producer's award. Oh, yeah? Well, mm-hmm. uh, the guy who shot this shot... Dan uh, Pearl. Yeah, he shot uh, a Bon Jovi video, so ha, ha. <laughs> Daniel Pearl. And he also shares a name with that journalist who was beheaded, right? Oh, Daniel yeah? Daniel Pearl. Mm-hmm. He famously murdered in some foreign country. Some Middle Eastern thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I love Franklin downstairs in that abandoned house when he's cursing his fate and feeling bitter about the fact that they're all upstairs where he can't get to and they're all laughing and having fun and right but you know your mileage may vary when it comes to Paul Partain um I've got no (laughs) I've got no empathy but Bob Burns his production design is amazing he made all of those bizarre ornaments and shrines and did all that stuff with the bones and got all those bones and feathers oh and risk Who, who knows what kind of diseases like just I couldn't have done that job no fucking way so then Kirk and uh, the other lady, I don't remember what her character's name is, they head off on their own and, oh, you know what they do? They go, they want to take a, a, a dip in the a pond. Dip. Right. Yeah. But of course the, the stream has dried out and then they come across this, turns out to be the house. And they're going to ask for gas. Yeah. Ask gas or grass, no one rides right. free. Apparently right. Was the, going to trade a guitar for gas. Yeah. Um, and so Kirk, who, you know, whatever the actor's name is, he seems like the most like sort of like the leading man. He's the, Mm. I don't remember what the name of the Greg or somebody in Scooby-Doo, like who's the blonde guy? Who's the the leader of the Scooby-Doo gang? That's not it. Somebody right now is screaming. Velma, Shaggy, Fred. Scooby, Fred. 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 He seems like the Fred. And so the fact that Kirk is the first to die and he, it's sort of, he's one and done, right? He gets one hit to the head. Yeah. And he's, uh, you know, a, a shard of his brain has gone into his and he's convulsing. and um, Just. So it, it's a terrifying uh, shock. Unbelievably upsetting. Like every yeah. murder in this movie is really, really upsetting. Uh, it's. There's not a kill that that is wasted, you know. No, 
And and what's amazing is they all take place within a 10, maybe 15 minute spread in time. Like this movie goes right. 40 minutes before anyone dies. But as opposed to maybe every other one of these movies that's been made in this genre since, those first 40 minutes don't feel like a waste of time. There's, there's no padding. Like, I'm 40 minutes in and I haven't even taken a breath. I'm like, every shot in this movie for the first 40 minutes up through Kirk's death is like fascinating to me. Like, I just love it all. And I'm like, I'm not thinking, I'm not looking at my watch going, when's someone going to die in this fucking movie? Or, you know, why couldn't they get to it already? Right, right. But I also don't think the movie feels... It doesn't feel like it's 84 minutes. And even you can't believe that it feels like that it's 84 minutes. It really feels like a, I don't know, a full meal. Like, you're just kind of like, really, this is that short? I looked at my watch last night towards the end. I was like, I couldn't believe it. I was like, no way. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Because it, you, right. And, and if somebody had told me that all the characters that die in this movie die in a 10 minute time span, I would have been like, that's not true. That's totally wrong. And in fact, when Franklin, I guess who's the last one to die, dies, I looked at my watch again and I'm like, oh, there's still like 35 minutes left in this movie. Mm-hmm. Like the, the, the final girl in this movie is on her own for 35 minutes. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. And then, of course, there's like a 25 minute run through the woods at night. I mean, there if there's one piece of this movie that to me feels like it's not as rewatchable as the rest of it, it's Leatherface chasing her through the woods at night. Which, yeah, but know, by that point, I'm so freaked out. Yeah, that absolutely. like, like it's just my nerves are shredded, and and at that point in the movie, it becomes an endurance test. Like Hooper is trying to shred your nerves, and that whole thing where she gets tied into the house she winds up back in the house after that terrifying and really creepy scene where she goes back to the barbecue gas station yeah we need to and get that to door that, that yeah. door is open yes right i mean jesus christ is that yeah, scary he leaves he says i'm gonna get the truck and he leaves the door open and yeah that's about as terrifying a moment as there ever is in the history of cinema and then also that shot. It's, it's like that Quint part where he's like talking about, like, <laughs> I've never been more afraid when I was waiting for that helicopter to pick me up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and the shot, the actual shot itself, when that pickup truck pulls into the open door frame and just parks there, it's really just a still life. It's like the door frame and a little bit <laughs> yeah. of barbecue in the corner and this pickup truck. And again, it's like a work of art. That one frame, I right. want that on my wall. Like that looks like a David Hockney or something. It's like, right. Ooh. And just how dark it is out there. And then when it, it lingers over the meats and she starts mm-hmm. to realize what's going on here. Right. But at some point, Marilyn Burns starts screaming and then she never stops Never screaming. stops. It's amazing. And it's a to- total ner- nerve shredder, right? Yeah. And apparently they shot that whole final sequence of her, of them at the dinner table. All that stuff with the grandfather and everything was all shot in like one 27-hour clip. Because I think, I'm trying to remember what the story 27 is. 27 hours? That they went straight. Here's what happened. They hired this 18-year-old kid to be grandpa. And they put this, what looks, I love the grandpa makeup. It never has bothered me. But really, it looks like a $5 Halloween store 
It's like a little big man costume. Yeah, like a little big man thing, but like a $5 version of the little big yeah, man yeah. thing. But apparently this thing puts... The Six Flags guy. Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I got... And you know, I've always hated that Six Flags guy more than anything ever in a commercial, but also right. been profoundly creeped out by him. And now I realize why. It's because he's fucking yeah. grandpa from Texas Chainsaw. Have right, you always right. thought that? Uh, yeah, pretty oh, much. You're a genius. <laughs> Maybe that's like a Chicago thing that people say. No, everyone um, hates that guy. Oh, good. Okay. I know people who don't hate him. I'm like, what's no, wrong with no, you? No, you know, he, that, that fucking thing inspires hatred among most of my friends. So okay. it's good. Glad to hear it. Uh, but so it turned out it took eight hours to put that mask on that dude. Unbelievable. And Maybe 14 hours into the first day of shooting, he said to them, and you know, it was like 120 degrees in that house. There was no air conditioning. They had covered all the windows with a tent because it was supposed to be nighttime and they were shooting through the day. Right. And so it was like 120 in the house and they would occasionally take breaks and go outside the house where it was only 100 degrees. And that dude is in this full face mask and Leatherface was also in a mask that they didn't right. want him to take off. The, the rule was if they were going to take more than a five minute break, he could take the leather face mask off. But every break they called, whether it turned out to be an hour or two hour break, they would say this is a five minute break. So he never got to take the mask off. So this 18 year old halfway through that first day of shooting was like, I'm not coming back for this. You're not taking this shit off my face. I'm not doing it again. So there and he was like. Trust me, I'm not coming back. Get all my shit now while I have this on the one time. So yeah. they wound up shooting for 27 hours straight so they could shoot him out of the movie. <laughs> oh, my God. So See, he said, once, so Gunner says they were all fucking insane by the end of that yeah. shoot. And that by the end of that dinner scene, like he was convinced he was Leatherface and he was really trying to kill her. And it was a whole fucking thing. Once again, the secret ingredient comes to the fore. You know, it's yeah. like, yeah. why didn't this happen again? Because it couldn't happen again. Yeah. Yeah. The more and more we talk about it, the more and more I realize that Toby Hooper wasn't a genius, that none of these people were geniuses, that this movie, you know, chose them. Yeah. Well, you're right. I don't believe well, that. Anything else you want? Well, okay. I, th I think we've actually covered well, it. Well, the thing about Marilyn Burns is uh, I always forget that she jumps out of a window twice. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which to me is really funny. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I love that shirt she wears. It's it's really hot. It's really great. Um, and her pants are great. She's super, super hot. And, but that look on her face at the end is one of the greatest pieces of horror acting of all time. Like, what is... She's just completely broken, right? Is, is that what's going on there? Yeah. And I think, again, as an actress, she was completely broken. Yeah. I mean, she was doing, they, they talk a lot about the, that when she breaks into the barbecue place, she busts through this door and lands on the floor on her knees. And they went, and, and it was important that the door swing open and stay open because then uh, Barbecue Man, the cook, walks through the door and he, they needed that shot to work. And they ended up doing it like 17 times before the yeah. door landed the right way and so she was landing on her knees 17 times in a row and so when you see that her pants are torn and there's blood on her knees that's all real like she really yeah. fucked up her knees and then at the end when she's jumping onto the pickup truck apparently they did that like 10 times because she kept apparently she, she moved barely really get slowly in. huh yeah she could barely get in 
Right. She could barely get in. She could barely run. And so Gunnar Hansen was constantly having to sort of slow himself down or find other business for Leatherface to be doing, like cutting branches so that he wasn't catching up to her too early. Um, but yeah, it was a real nightmare shoot. But that, the fact that she she could barely walk anymore is, is the other thing that adds to that sort of nightmarish quality to it. Like how many d- dreams or nightmares have you had where you can't run? You know, your legs just won't work. And watching that scene, especially last night, I was like, oh my God, they totally nailed the nightmare running thing that I have all the time. Yeah. I mean, it, it yeah. gets so incredibly nightmarish. And when she jumps through that window and it's suddenly daylight. That's so you, great. It's oh my just, God. it's just incredible. I mean, the, I don't, the best way to see this movie is at the end. And I have done that is at the end of a, you know, 24 hour marathon where this is the last movie. And after this movie's over, you, you go out and the sun is up and you're just like, you're in the proper headspace. Yeah. And she goes out into the daylight, which should sort of normally signal like the end of a nightmare, but you're not, she's not safe at all. And you're constantly, and that, so this is, this is the thing I was trying to get at before about what separates this from like a Wolf Creek, which is this nonstop misery and those stupid fucking Eli Roth movies that are like, you know, doomed from the beginning and saw and all that shit is that she, she does make it sort of, I mean, she's obviously lost her mind, but I mean, she's not dead, but, um, but you think she will be like that, that, that the, one of the smartest things they do is setting you up for, um, an unhappy ending and like a complete misery. And it doesn't actually happen. And I think that's what makes this a better work of art than all these totally miserable things that came in its wake. And and even those French extreme movies where they're like they don't pull you out of a nightmare. I think Catherine Bigelow said like uh, at the end of Near Dark she wanted she she needed to pull you up out of the nightmare. That she doesn't like horror movies that don't release you into some non nightmare thing at the very end. And I I appreciate that. Like I'm yeah. I'm happy to say I'm wimpy enough to want some ray of hope or sunshine at the end of these things. Well, it's the artistry again. I mean there. And the way the the movie is takes place in a day, you know, and the way it takes full advantage of that day and the different moods in horror that different times of the day can can evoke in you, and you know, it gets it nails the the end is morning horror, you know, it's it's like it's the the dawn of Leatherface. I mean, it's really. And, you know, you you can't not talk about this movie without talking about that final shot where, you know, they're driving away, and but Leatherface is still there. And he's, you know, doing the dance, swinging around that uh, chainsaw. And it's terrifying. Yeah. And then it stops. Yeah. And, and uh, man, it stops at the exact perfect moment. It's it's unbelievable. Every time I watch it and it stops, I'm like, holy shit, what a great piece of art. Well, and if you want to go, if you want to go meta in a way that they suggest you might want to, um, and what another thing that this movie may or may not be about, and even if it's not really about, it's easy to sort of lay this out and say, yeah, sure, that's valid. That truck that comes is called the Black Mariah. 
And the Black mm. Mariah is the first ever movie studio. It's Thomas Edison's movie studio. And so there's a way to read this movie where, uh, you know, the history of cinema and the birth of cinema arrives at the end. Cinema itself arrives at the end in the in the form of a truck driven by a black truck driver in deep in the heart of, of Texas and comes to the rescue of the of the final victim of this film of the heroine of the film and assists her in in making it out of this film barely alive although you don't get to see what happens to him he doesn't jump in that pickup truck god knows <laughs> right. what's gonna go on with him <laughs> right. and that truck is abandoned and the end right. of the movie is leatherface in his own weird sort of triumphant way doing that dance like he's you know, he's, he's got this cut on his leg, but it doesn't seem to really, really be bothering him. He's still right. ready for, to dance with the thing. So it's almost like it's the birth of movies arriving at the end to sort of save the heroine of this movie. But honestly, it's really just as much about the death of cinema. Like this is the end of the line for cinema. Cinema at the end of this movie is a is an abandoned truck on the side of a rural Texas highway. <laughs> and, he, and the frame is filled with this fucking total lunatic who represents where we are as humanity. Right. Hmm. 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 I mean, they knew what they were doing when they named that truck. Yeah, no. I, well, I was going to say there are no accidents in this movie, but clearly I think there's tons of accidents in this yeah, movie. Yeah, but this one wasn't one of them. They even yeah. acknowledge on their commentaries, like, oh, Black Mariah. Right, exactly. exactly. It's, it's, it's great. I just, you know, that final image, I mean, he's still out there. I mean, it is just... Uh, really incredible yeah and in a way yeah. it's it's it sort of prefigures the end of Halloween yes like yes right yeah yeah you know this movie is is an it's an important link between you know there's Psycho and then there's uh, uh, Night of the Living Dead and there's mm-hmm. then there's this Texas Chainsaw Massacre and then there's Halloween yeah I mean it's just the continuum between those movies is yeah, absolutely essential. When was the last? What was the last movie you ever went to, seeing something for the first time, and feeling sort of afraid, like its reputation preceded, and you weren't you weren't sure how you were going to be able to handle it? Like I, I was really afraid in Hereditary. I was I was terrified going that was, into the movie. Going into the movie. Uh, maybe Tatane. I was very scared to go see Tatane. Uh, you know, I was, I was like, I don't think I can see this. I don't know if I want to see this. Had um, you seen Raw? Yeah, I'd seen Raw. Yeah. Which I wasn't a huge fan of, but, mm-hmm. uh, but I, I was definitely aware that, that she could crank it up to 11. But, uh, you know, right away in Hereditary, like I felt this dread and, and, you know, once, once they took the kid's head off, I was like, oh, this movie's capable of anything. And it, and it had me, um, you know, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. The last time I was really, really terrified of something, you know, I mean, I'd heard things about irreversible, you know, I was pretty afraid of that. I mean, usually, okay. I know what it was. It was, uh, it was, um, the house that Jack built. 
the uh, what's yeah. his face, Lars von Trier movie. Yeah, absolutely terrified. I was walking to the theater, a music box, and they were showing the unrated version, yeah. and it was just one showing only on one day. And I was walking there to meet my friend Mike, and I was just kind of like, I, like, like an invisible hand had to push me. Like I was just dragging my feet. I was like, why am I doing this to myself? And the entire movie, I was completely terrified because, you know, I'd seen Antichrist and I knew what that motherfucker was capable of. And I, right. and if he was back in that mode, I, I couldn't believe I was doing that to myself again. Did you go to that Chicago Glenn Danzig movie screening? No, 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 I wish I had. Oh my was, God. He said it was one of the greatest nights at a movie theater. Uh, I've heard so many great things about it. Because uh, it's not as much fun to watch on Shudder as I imagine <laughs> it was that night. <laughs> yeah, like him coming out, apparently coming out after the movie. And right. Uh, well, surprised I, at the reaction. Surprised at the reaction. Well, I guess that's cool. I didn't think it was going to be, I didn't think it was that funny, but if you thought that, okay, all right. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Yeah. I what didn't about you? I didn't know. We're done. Okay, we're done talking about. It. But but I didn't. I wasn't even sure if Texas Chainsaw had a New York City release in '74 on its first run. But I did some investigating, and okay. in fact, it did. So I'm just going to show you. It opened on Wednesday, October 30th, the day before Halloween in 1974. And let's just take a quick look at what else was playing, courtesy of the old. The day before times. Halloween, it opened. Yeah, Wednesday. The movies nice. used to open on like Wednesdays. So here, here's the ad, and I, I always thought that, that this tagline must have just been like on re-releases, but no, again, who will survive and what will be left of them, which is a right. great fucking tagline, was what actually part true. of true. Yeah, America's Most Bizarre and Brutal Crimes. Now, see, in this ad, they haven't separated out Chain and Saw, although right. down I below, mean, they do, like in the credits for the I movie. See. So. I mean, this movie... This ad looks like it, you know, it's like one step away from In Cold Blood, you know? I mean, it, mm-hmm. it, the whole true crime thing is yeah. definitely, people yeah. must, oh, Jesus, can you imagine going into there and thinking that's what you were going to get and coming out with this? Yeah. No. Oh. But also playing was Carol O'Connor and Ernest Borgnine in Law and Disorder, directed by Ivan Passer. Amazing. I don't know that. I, I've seen it. Really? I had no idea that Ivan Passer had anything to do with it. That's that's who's hilarious. Ivan Passer. Ivan Passer is the guy who did Cutter's Way, one of your faves. Oh yes, um, great movie. I was thinking. I was <laughs> I was thinking about um, comparing uh, Paul Partain uh, to uh, you know John Hurd in Cutter's <laughs> Way in that performance, and that's like so over no, the top that it comes back around. That is, that is, you know what? You could go see. Texas Chainsaw Massacre in 1974. Or you could have a good time. Go see Gold. Yeah. Roger Moore, Susanna York. In and Gold. Michael Klinger production of Peter Hunt's Gold. I don't know. I don't know anything about that movie. But look he at was, Ziegfeld. Uh, he, was, he was brothers with Mike Hunt. <laughs> nice. Classy with a K. Um, yeah. 2001, A Space Odyssey was showing at the Ziegfeld. In 70 millimeter and full stereophonic sound. Full stereophonic. Now, if you want a good time, go see that. Yeah. 
Uh, Fellini's Amarcord was playing. I never even knew that the translation is I Remember. I don't think I've ever even seen I it. I didn't remember that. <laughs> uh, here's uh, a movie we Taking both a Pelham 1, 2, taking 3. Taking a Pelham. Uh, playing at the Criterion. Is that where Criterion got their name from? The theater? Uh, that's a good question. Might be. Here's a movie I've never heard of. Michael Caine and the Black Windmill. The Ultimate Exercise in Controlled Terror. I need to find this movie and watch mm. it. That sounds good to me. Michael Caine's got a gun it in his sounds... hand. Or a power drill. I can't tell what's in his hand in this ad. What do you think that, that looks is? like, like a, a Uzi? That looks like a gun. Yeah, okay. it looks like an Uzi. And the at most theaters, it was on a double a feature bill with Paul Newman, Joanne Woodward, and Robert Wagner in Winning. Winning? Don't know it. I've never heard of that one either. Oh, what do we got? Monty Python? Monty Python, and now oh, for something, now for completely, something different. completely different. What is that one? Is that just a series of their skits, like the TV show put together? It's a lot. I think it's a live, a live, I think it's a filming of a, of a, a live concert that they would do their skits from the show live. Right. I think that's what that is. Now, here's a, here's a total 70s art house thing that I, my grandparents took me to see. Like, this is a movie, King of Hearts, that played forever. Like, years and years this. in New York. And nobody ever talks about it anymore. And what was it? It was a French uh, film about a guy who gets released from an insane asylum during World War... I can't remember which World War it is. Uh, and Or everyone gets let out of an insane asylum. And they... Because the village has been... Uh, abandoned because there's going to be an air raid or something. And so the inmates from this uh, insane asylum just take over the entire village and have their own crazy village, which sounds like fun. And I think it's a good movie, but hmm. it's, it's totally forgotten. Well, but I it's love playing with Bambi meets with, Godzilla. Yeah, Bambi meets Godzilla and Lenny Bruce's Thank You Mask Man. I don't know Lenny Bruce. What is that? I don't know. Okay, go up. up. Uh, okay, you've got the Thursday night only Halloween screen and stage spectacular. Prizes oh, for yeah. best costumes at the yeah. uh, at the theater that's playing the the gay porn films, which was called the Mini, all men, yeah. all action, the Mini. And oh, so they were showing three big all male films. They were showing the Baron, and in parentheses, a, a fistful fist full of fun, fun. <laughs> uh, plus dust unto dust, and <laughs> for money. X-rated color all male cast. It was held over the Baron. Everyone loves the Baron. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The fistful of fun was held over, but at the bottom it says yeah. the Thursday showing Halloween is screen, Halloween and stage screen and stage spectacular. Now, I know it's hard to imagine what it must have been like to be a young gay man in 1974, but I'm betting that was a good night. Yeah, I'm sure for it was. a lot of people, and probably a bad the, night at for the a couple. Gaiety mur- burlesque. Live on stage, the Prince of Burlesque, spelled B-U-R-L-E-S-K, Mr. Joel, plus Willie. Is that that male burlesque with a K? Is that the way we go? I guess. Leather Bond. Two all-male films, Hot for Cash and Leather Bond. Look at at the Theater 80 St. Mark's, their Halloween triple feature horror show was Freaks, a new full-length print of Freaks, Mark of the Vampire... Uh, and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. 
the Frederick March version. Very classy yeah. night. Very classy at the yeah. Arady St. Mark's. And over at the Regency, we had the Conversation and the Conformist. There's a double bill for you. That is a great double bill. Interestingly, the Conformist was rated R, and Conversation was PG. Who'd have thunk? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't even know why I said that. Uh, okay, wait. <laughs> what else do we got here? Uh, Peter Finch. The Seduction of Mimi. Oh, where are you? Okay, yeah, we got, let's, okay, right? Seduction of Mimi. The, the Abdication. The Abdication, yes. Peter Finch and Liv Ullman. No idea what that is. Deep Throat was still going strong. Here we go. Dual Goal Chill Show. Uh, dual Ghoul, see? Dual, dual Ghoul, ghoul. sorry, Dual Ghoul. I don't know why I said Ghoul. Uh, <laughs> Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell playing with Captain Kronos Vampire Hunter. Now, have you seen either of those? I might have seen Captain Kronos, but they're both Hammer films. So this is exactly what Toby Hooper was excited about when he was... Uh, I would love to, to see these two movies. Yeah. These, these would be a great Halloween double bill for us this year. Yeah, it would. Maybe what we else did we have? This, uh... Whoa. Okay, so The Night Porter, which is Euro trash at its finest... Yeah, I, I still haven't made it to the Night Porter. Yeah, it's it's pretty unwatchable. It's, it's a real bore. Oh, really? I thought yeah. it was on me. No, no, no. I New, thought I thought it was well, my problem. If it's on you, it's on me too. Wait a minute. Okay. Look at this double feature. We need to move over here to the last detail and the Lords of Flatbush. <laughs> oh my God! Uh, I love these you double in, features. You would have been in heaven. Yeah. Uh, Andy now, Warhol's Frankenstein. Andy Warhol's Frankenstein. In 3D. Three, yes. Have you ever seen that in 3D? No. Have you? It's, yeah, yeah. I saw it at the music box, box once at 3D, and there's really no comparison. I mean, you have to see that movie in 3D. I feel like I saw it on a double bill with... Was it recently, was it and was it like digital dolls? 3D? No, it was digital film 3D. 3D the only, was... One of the only great things about digital is 3D because none of those problems of like the dual projectors not really being in sync and mm -hmm. giving you a headache, none of that happens with digital 3D. No, this was, this was film 3D and it was perfect. It was one of the best hmm. 3D movies or best 3D presentations I've ever seen. It looked perfect, not the least because it was in scope and so they would... Like at the music box, the screen would get smaller and, you know, instead yeah. of actually wider. So, yeah. it, so like the stuff seemed to like, it, it just concentrated the image and, and that made the 3D stronger and it, wow. you could almost see the stuff, like the guts coming right off of it. I mean, it was, it was great. Wow. That's great. Chinatown. Oh, look at this. Plus second Most feature. Most highly acclaimed film 74. Wait a minute. Oh. But don't look now as well, a second you. feature. Now that's that's my dream double bill. I would love to sit in the theater and watch Chinatown and Don't Look Now. My God, wow! I mean, come on, man. And it was playing in Brooklyn at the Nostrand, which is where I saw Halloween for the first time. So it's a total magic. The the Nostrand. Yep, the Nostrand Theater. Victor Van Nostrand. Isn't yeah. that one Kramer's characters? Yes. Victor Van Nostrand. Yes. Yes, it is. Or it's or George. It might be George. 
No, it's it's Kramer. He is one of the pipe ones. Yes, I'm Victor oh, yeah. Van Nostrand. Uh, they got the Groove Tube I'm, over there. I know you're. Uh, yeah, yeah, but I, but I will for, before I get to Groove Tube, what is this? I've never heard of this movie. Okay. Wet Rainbow. Wet. Yeah. yeah, they they're all wet. Oh, it's an X. It's an X. But it was playing at the Cinema Village, which I thought was a legit theater. Hmm. It's the sensual story of a marriage struck by an erotic obsession in this age of multiple choice. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Mm-hmm. The possibilities are... Endless. Endless. Or, or at least more than one. Um, oh, wait a minute. Yeah. I don't want to go there yet. So you had the groove tube over there. Yeah, groove tube. Held over, don't miss... Wild and Funny at the King's Plaza, which was a shopping mall. That's great. Um, Phantom of, of the Paradise. Paradise. Are you into Phantom of the Paradise? Is that one of your De Palma faves? Never seen it. Never seen it. Oh, really? Wow. Yep. I'm that saving seems... it. I'm... Yeah, okay. What are you saving it for? I'm saving it for a good, uh, good performance in supersonic stereophonic sound. That seems one right. of these days they'll show it somewhere and it'll be it'll be at the it music box like or something. It seems like a movie that's got to be at the music box any day now. Like, how have they not shown Yeah, yeah. When we get Julian Antos on this show, we'll demand that he bring that to the music, music oh, box. Oh, Julian's coming on Lifers first. Yeah, okay. I just, okay. I talk about all our podcasts like they're one happy oh. family. <laughs> uh, Eleven Harrow House is a movie directed by uh, my film professor uh, back in college. Really? Aram Avakian. Wow. Although his name does not seem to be on the ad. It's no. Like directed by no one. Um, yeah, he also directed... Um, he direct, My favorite film that he directed is this movie, maybe you've seen it, not that easy to see, with Stacey Keach called End of the Road. Mm, no. Stacey Keach and James Earl Jones. No. No, I haven't seen that one. Written by Terry Stacy Stacey Keach is really great. Uh, Eleven Harrow House with with um, Spies as the second feature at most theater. Now, Spies, I think Spies is like the Elliot Gould and Donald Sutherland sort of follow-up to MASH, and that's why it's got uh, these dopey, like, right. between each letter. I see that. I think huh. that's what that movie is. Oh, here it is, directed by Aaron Mavakian. It's just in such tiny well, letters that you can't really see it. it I mean, is it good? Eleven Harrow House? The, yeah. The notices yeah. are off the charts. It is good. Charles Grodin, James Mason, Candace Bergen, John Gielgud, Trevor Howard. Trevor Howard. I just read the whole cast I mean, for no reason. Uh, at the St. Mark's... First Cinema Trevor was, Howard movie I ever saw was Windwalkers. Oh, yeah. That's a good one to start out with. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> uh, He's playing it. Okay, I think we got one more... Uh, page of movies here. Now, this blows my mind that Airport 75 yes. came out in 74. For some reason, I thought those Seems airport wrong. movies were locked into the actual years they were released, but maybe it, they were trying it, to be it, like it, trying to be like futuristic, I guess. You'll go bananas for Airport 1975. Is it, Vernon Scott yeah, from UPI, I'm, United Press International. His full quote is, The classic survival film. If you like Poseidon Adventure and Airport, you'll go bananas for Airport 75. Hmm. Now, was was the 
airplane slightly futuristic in airport 1975? No. No, I don't think... Look at that picture of Burt Reynolds for the longest yard. Now, that doesn't look like a prison movie, does it? Or maybe it does. What's going on with his pants here? I don't know. I mean... He looks like he's got. I those can't pants. tell what he's, he's wearing. He's got like those hip hop pants where they're like his undie pants are up to his. I don't know what's going on. Maybe there's some weird prison. It looks like a Playgirl shoot. Yeah. Burt Reynolds, Reynolds and, and his, his mean, mean machine. machine. Oh, that's what it is. That it's his mean machine. I get <laughs> yeah, it. That's his mean machine. <laughs> they play it rough. They play it dirty. They play it wild. And now they're playing in a theater near you. I mean, how would you know? What this movie was supposed to be about, unless you knew what it was about. The Longest Yard. That could be about anything with that picture going there. And this picture seems like such a sort of half-assed, like, grabbed a still, like a like a frame from the movie. Like, he's like mid-putting his shirt on or taking it off. I think the only reason they would possibly use this picture is because he's basically bare-chested, yeah. but why not yeah. get a better picture of him bare-chested? Like, his face Look at the is half-assed so look on looking. his face. Yeah. Yeah. It looks like... Like, that's the, the the part where he just got out of bed and they're there to arrest him? Is yeah. that what's going on in that scene? <laughs> yeah, I think that might be right. Yeah. Good movie, though. We know what you're doing. We know what you're doing, Paramount. Great movie. The Life, Harry Loves, and, and Music of Giuseppe Verdi. Never seen it. Oh. Don't want to. <laughs> That's got to be a hoot. Harry and the Tonto. The Phantom of Liberté. Phantom uh, of Liberté. You know this? I know I've heard I mean, of this Bunuel film, but I don't think I've ever seen it. Never heard of it. Wild Child and Murmur of the Heart. Remember the heart play in a couple places. But notice how it's spelled differently from ad to ad. This, I believe, is correct on uh, top with the M-U-R-M-U-R. Yes. But over here, it's M-U-R-M-E-R. But there it's, it's playing with Wild Child. So you got a Truffaut and a, a Louis Mel. Yeah. That would be good. But over at the Thalia, it's playing with 10 from your show of shows, which, as far as I can understand, must mean 10 skits from your show of shows or... 10 episodes of your show of shows? I don't even understand how that's in the theater. I don't know either. Harry and Tonto. You ever see Harry and Tonto? No. Gene Shalit liked it. That's um, Art Carney and a cat. Right. I don't think I've ever seen it either. It wasn't. Look at this crazy fucking ad. What was the art? Yeah. Why is there all these art? I don't know. This is, these were the days where people were laying these things out by cutting and pasting, you know, little slips of paper on top of each other. I guess. What was and the Art Kearney and uh, um, the late, late show, movie. The late Robbie movie Benson show. movie? Oh, I'm sorry, I was thinking of the Art Kearney and Robbie Benson. No, I was thinking of the Late Show with Lily Tomlin and Art Kearney. Okay. Art Kearney, it's there's people yelling at us as we speak, and Robbie Benson. Uh, I don't think there is a movie with Art Carney and Robbie Benson. All right. You know what? It must be with Robbie Benson and somebody else. Is Robbie Benson and Paul Newman? Yes. That's um, Harry and Son. That's it. I hate that movie. (laughs) 
There's a, there's a, have you ever seen those Italian zombie movies? They're not really zombie. Maybe they are zombie. Demons and then Demons 2. Love them. Love them. So, Demons takes place in a movie theater. Yes, and Demons 2 takes place in a high rise. But in Demons, uh, in the movie theater lobby, which was, uh, you know, I think that they just dressed this thing up for the movie. There's all these other movie posters, and most of them make sense or something, or they seem like they would be cool for being demons. Uh-huh. But there is a Harry and Son poster in the lobby of the Demons movie theater. That's all I know about it. When was the last time you've seen Demons 2? Uh, it's been a while. That's the it's brilliant. one? Yeah. Yeah. It's a brilliant movie. I'll send you the... Um, there's a Cinema Talk episode where Jim Healy talks to Mike McPadden about Demons. Oh, Demons is great. The Gambler, the original The Gambler, yeah. James Caan. Yeah. yeah. And I've seen it. here's a movie that I watched. Scenes from for, a Marriage is playing. Are you, are you watching the Scenes from a Marriage on HBO? I haven't succumbed to it yet, no. Okay. Do I need I'm to? Curious. Oscar Isaac I, I is a guy I who I love I it. in like two movies and then don't care at all about in every other movie he's in. Drive. And what was the other one? He is good in Drive, but um, uh, um, the uh, the Coen Brothers thing. Oh yes, Lewin Davis. What's it called? Lewin Davis. Inside. Inside Lewin Davis. Davis. He's fantastic in that movie. That is, that is up there with the Coen Brothers' best. That is that movie is great. Are you psyched to see? The one Cohen brother, Macbeth? Macbeth, yeah, I'm really excited. And, uh, uh, excuse me, what the fuck? So Owen Wilson is on uh, Saturday Night Live the other night, and all he talks about is how, you know, he's he coasts and he's in the new Cars movie, and that's all they talk about. He's in the new Wes Anderson movie, which comes out in like a week or so. Could they not have mentioned that? What the fuck? What kind of world are we living in, man? I don't know, but... I don't know anyone who's Saturday seen that movie who liked it, even big Wes Anderson fans. What, the new one? Yeah. Oh, really? Is that why he didn't bring it up? Because it's terrible? I don't know. I'm getting a weird vibe about it. Mm, but whatever. I sort of heard that I mean, about that, that uh, what was it, the hotel? Grand Budapest that? Hotel? That huh? movie's great. Yeah. Grand Budapest Which, Hotel? That's what that I was movie's saying. great. Like, I heard bad things about it that I saw. I was like, this is fantastic. Oh, no, no. That's nonsense. That's that that makes me want to see this new movie all the more. The French Dispatch. It's to me great. It looks like it might be a sequel in of some yeah. sorts to that. So I'm yeah. very very excited about this. Okay, well we're done with movies, but but before we leave, look at this. Okay. Sgt. Oh, Pepper's Jesus. Lonely Hearts Club Band on the Road. A rock spectacle with a cast of 32. Live on stage, uh, all singing, all dancing, all music. Wow, we've got to do that movie one of these days. Um, well, we did it on Crackpot Cinema. Oh, you did? Okay, all right, cool. Because I did not want to do that movie. <laughs> did you see that movie in the 70s? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I remember it being on television. But oh. whether or not it, I saw it in the 70s on television, I, I, I honestly can't remember. I'm not... I'm, 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 
not very good at this because the only things I've seen in the seventies are Kramer versus Kramer and Young Frankenstein. Well, I would love to do Apparently. both of those movies. So let's do Kramer versus Kramer for sure. The King Kong remake. How about uh, we go? See, how about we take a time machine back to 1974 so that we can go see Lynn Redgrave and George Rose in a play called My Fat Friend? Nah. Not not, that. I'd rather go see Marla Thomas and Richard Mulligan in Thieves. in Thieves, directed by Charles Grodin. Dude, I really would like to see that. And Greece was happening in 74, huh? Okay, why do you think that... This is another weird layout. Why do you think Est in the longest-running show on Broadway is in a different font and size than the long? I don't know. Because maybe they're playing off the G in Greece, but there's a G in long. It doesn't really make sense, does it? No. No. So, so, now, so now we're checking out the theater yeah, section? We're checking out the theater section. We're going to go through page by page of this. All right. I can't take it anymore. All right. Uh, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy recuperation week as you prepare to get back on the road and rock the fucking house all over the place. When do you go back? When's your first? Uh, when? Um, well, shit. Our next show is, I think, next Friday or something like that. So... It's coming so up. Hit the road like next Wednesday. <sighs> Probably Wednesday or Thursday, something like that. All right. Well, it was lovely to have you back on the show. Yeah. I'll talk. Fun to, you to talk about a great movie. Awesome. Up. Uh-